This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. Good afternoon. It's hard to believe it's already time for my senior sermon that four weeks from now we'll be uh, hopefully accepting my graduation and that's if uh, everything goes right at finals. Um, it's amazing just kind of looking back over this period of my life. Um, you tend to, whenever you reach a big milestone, tend to reflect on what's happened, the good, the bad. Um, it's hard to believe that it's been seven years. I've seen multiple graduating classes come and go. I've actually outlasted some of the professors between Jared Compton and uh, Brian Trainer, and seen great, pro- had benefit of awesome professors here with, the ones that are here right now, but also Dr. McCabe, Dr. Combs, um, and just how the Lord's used uh, this place in my life has benefited me greatly. But one of the things that, as reflecting over this past period in my life, that has been a big rebuke to me, is, and my biggest regret, is I don't have any relationships with my fellow classmates. I can honestly say I don't know any of your wives' names. I don't even know some of your names here your last names, don't have any of your phone numbers. Um, and it's been something that's been of a great regret to me, of missing out on the opportunity of having um, the relationships, the accountability. Um, and I know this isn't a, a senior um, testimony, but as my sermon, it's been a big regret. And I'd, I would admonish you to be building relationships with your classmates. I always had excuses of why I couldn't. I live too far. I have work after. Um, I don't have the same interests as many of you. And always had an excuse why I didn't build those relationships. And even though this might be an extreme case in my testimony, I think this is also the case that we see in many of our congregations where we're not seeing those relationships that are being built among those within the congregation or here in the student body. We have this sense, this false sense of connectedness because of social media and other uh, things within our culture where we feel like we're connected. I can spend a half hour before bed looking through Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, whatever it might be, and feel like I have interacted with you. I could go on Joe's page and find out all the things that he's interested in without once talking with with any of you. And it makes us think that we're connected. And because of the busyness of our culture, we live in isolation. We're around people all the time, yet we're so alone. And we think that we're being united because we don't have any um, fights or conflicts with fellow believers. And this makes us feel like we are in a good relationship with them. But that's, is that what unity is? Is unity with believers just the absence of conflict, or is there something else to it? <clears throat> Typically, the conversations we see in our church, uh, in our congregations, is they don't, have, they don't have any relationship outside of church, and when they are inside of church, the conversations are so superficial. Of What did you do last weekend? How's your family doing? How was work? Did you see the game last night? And not really diving much deeper than that. And we see that the gospel and, and Christianity has 
a way of connecting people that have no business having a relationship with each other by world standards. Being able to connect people in different age groups, different social classes, different personalities, different interests, and the Bible has a way of connecting us through that. And I think in the passage that we're going to be dealing with today, it talks about how is this possible? Please turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It's a very, very brief section, and you're going to say, you know what, he's, he's cherry-picking here because there's no huge theological problems. There's nothing too deep here, but I think it's something that we overlook sometimes in these ones where Paul is getting very specific in his application. The context leading up to this is the Philippians have been encountering persecution, and Paul tells them to be united in spite of this persecution. And now he's transitioning over to saying, you can be united in spite of persecution because of your union with God. Let's read the passage here. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion... Make, then make my joy complete be, by being like-minded, having the same love, being in, uh, in one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Paul begins this section with four if statements. And this is really designed to get at the why of what he's about to get to. He's going to tell you what you're supposed to do, but first he's going to tell you why is this possible and why are you to do it. With these four if statements, he says, if any encouragement from united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Because of how we tend to use the the word if, it we usually think in the realm of possibilities or potentialities. It's usually if, if I pass my finals, I will graduate. That leaves room for I may not pass finals and therefore I may not graduate. However, that's not how Paul is using if here. He's, for Paul, these are certainties. It's as though he were saying, if these are true, and by the way, they are, then this ought to motivate you. <clears throat> the four statements are benefits that believers have for, because of their union with God. The benefit of receiving encouragement from Christ ought to motivate us to be united with other believers. Look at the first if statement. If there's any encouragement in Christ, it could probably be better say if there's any encouragement be, from being united with Christ, there's two aspects to encouragement. There's a comforting aspect of encouragement, but there's also a strengthening aspect. Have you really thought about what it means to encourage someone else? Oftentimes you're using it in the context of either someone who has gone through a loss. You're, you're comforting them. You are encouraging them. But there should, there's also an strengthening aspect of encouragement that enables you to do something. You are trying to empower someone. To, incur, to encourage them is to comfort them, console them, but also to strengthen them, to prod them on. <clears throat> The Philippians were encountering suffering on Christ's behalf, and they were, he's saying that you have received encouragement from Christ. You are comforted in your trials, but also you are being strengthened to endure through the trials. 
as, believe, as believers, we are often beaten up by life. Uh, this year has been really rough for my wife and I. We've just been hit with problem after problem after problem. Uh, financially, our septic system failed. And then because our septic system failed, our water softener and iron filter failed. Then my wife's car broke down. Then my car broke down. And then I got interrogated by Homeland Security because apparently um, my identity is stolen for money laundering. And it just seemed like one thing after another after another and after another. And I needed encouragement and comfort. I, I can honestly say that there were many believers within the church who comforted me, who encouraged me, who were constantly looking in my life. And that's one of the benefits that we have of being in Christ is that not only do we get internal encouragement through the work of the Holy Spirit, but also through other believers. How often do you go out of your way to purposefully encourage someone? So many times we look at, at, I need encouragement. I need comfort. I have needs, and they may be legitimate, but don't let that shield you from the fact there are others around you who have needs. Being united in Christ, believers receive comfort in the midst of their trials and strength to endure the trials. He also states that we receive comfort from his love. He says, if any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love. It reminds me of another passage that Paul states. It's in Second Corinthians 1-3. through He says, Blessed be the God of comfort who comforts us amidst all our trials so that we may comfort those who are experiencing the same things that we have. Sometimes God is equipping you in the midst of your trials, and it might not feel that way, to then pass on that comfort to other believers, to strengthen others. Can we take comfort in that fact that even when our trials, we are being equipped to, uh, to help others? Are you viewing yourselves as being both equipped, this should be both equipping you and motivating you to encourage other believers? We not only receive benefit from encouragement in Christ and comfort from his love, we also benefit from the fellowship of, of the Spirit. It's, uh, let me ask you this question. What's easier, building a relationship with someone that you have no previous knowledge of, no, nothing in common, you're just building from scratch, or building a relationship through um, a mutual friend? Typically, we tend to have something in common. When we, when we have a friend in common, it helps us gear us to having the same interest. We know that we both are friends with this one person and therefore are, have that linkage. We have that connection before. We have unity in the spirit. We both have a friendship with the same person. We have someone who is on a spiritual level almost introducing us to, to each other. We have something in common through the unity in the, the spirit. We share the same Holy Spirit, and that ought to motivate us to be united with others. Um, I I can't remember where I heard um, the phrase. I think it was in in one of the church history classes. um, Says that uh, one of the father, uh, um, the Christian fathers said, um, the Spirit binds God to man and man to man. That the Holy Spirit is working in us to help unite each other to uh, together. 
the basis of Paul's appeals here in verses uh, <clears throat> uh, in verse one is that we all have a common sharing. We all have the Holy Spirit if we are believers. We all share in the same experiences of having encouragement from Christ. We all have comfort from his love, and we all have this unity in the Spirit. And therefore, this is the basis for how we can be united with other believers. If these things are indeed true, this ought to happen. So you have to ask yourself, if these things are not true for you, why not? Do you not share the same spirit? Do you not share comfort of his love? Either that's an indictment against your, the person who claims to be a believer, that they may not be genuinely a believer, or it might be an indictment against you. And you have to ask yourself why. Unity with other believers is also precipitated not only by our common experience in Christ, but also the unity of our values. As I mentioned, that we all share with um, the Holy Spirit, and we have that in common. But there is something that we value that is in common. He says here in verse 2, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Any of you um, who are married know it's very hard to have uh, the same way of thinking as the opposite sex. So is this really saying here that you are to think about things the same way? Because if we do, we'd never have any conflict. I, I think this is getting at the fact that we have the same values and that we both have a love and affection for God. Even despite having different personality types, different cultures, we can be united with someone on the other side of the world that has a completely different way of looking at things because we have the same values in God. Think of that person that annoys you in church, that person who is always talking and never seems to shut up, uh, that person who always chews with their mouth open. I'm thinking of that's Dr. Dorn's big pet peeve uh, is uh, people who chew loudly. Um, that person who always sticks their nose in other people's business. Uh, if if you ever hear um, people of, of uh, it, it drives my wife nuts is when you have someone who's telling other people how to raise their kids and telling you must do this, this, and this, and is always seeming to stick their nose in other people's business. Are we going to let those petty things distract you from the fact that you both love God and should be united in our values? We tend to be so short-sighted looking at the, the little annoyances. We also have the same affections. Look at the statement in verse 2. It says, have the same love. Same love for God ought to drive us to love one another. It should stir within us a greater love for other believers. Uh, there's a, a saying that I've heard and used many a time is, the Bible requires me to love you. It doesn't require me to like you. I think we often create this dichotomy that the Bible does not allow us to have, that I, I can love you without liking you. And yes, there are going to be personality differences. There are going to be things that annoy us. But there should be an affection for other believers. If we have the love for the same God, there should be something within us that is knit together with other believers. I, I know there's, there's, um, there's people in my church that it is hard to have that affection for. The people that just kind of rub you the wrong way. But we are to have a love for and uh, affection for others because they love God too. 
they love the same person that you are trying to be like. And if you are both trying to be Christ-like, both trying to be like God, that love for him ought to start loving that Christ-likeness that is in other believers. We're also supposed to have the same intentions. At the end of verse 2, it says, be intent on one purpose. What is our purpose as believers? If we were to boil down what is our purpose as believers, we would say it's to glorify God, right? That is the overall purpose of our lives is to glorify God. And we look at the two greatest commandments that Jesus sums up as love God and love your neighbors as yourself. So if we were to boil down our purpose, we are to glorify God by loving him and loving other believers. When you, <clears throat> when you love, um, sorry, so we, we know that we're to love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and our, and our neighbors as ourselves. It's so easy as short-sighted people to get wrapped up in the here and now and forget about our overall purpose in life and in glorifying God and doing that by loving others. Um, and when we lose sight of this purpose, we get caught up on the petty things. Um, an illustration of this, my wife and I, um, about two years ago, we, we were trying to build some relationships with some other couples in the church that we really didn't know all that well. So the whole purpose of having everyone of us together was to start building some relationships that, that we could have going forward. And during the course of the evening, someone plugged the toilet. And it was nasty. <clears throat> and thankfully, they had shut off the water to keep it from overflowing. But after everyone had left and I discovered what had happened, I went about the process of clearing the toilet. And it overflowed, got all over the ground. It was nasty. I'm on my hands and knees, and I'm cleaning everything up. And I'm just irritated. I knew who did it, too. I just <laughs> knew who did it. <clears throat> well, misery loves company, right? So you... you like to share what has happened with you. And I, I, I went and I told some of my friends, this is what happened. I think it was so-and-so. And, well, word got around back to that person, and they were so hurt and mortified that I had shared this story. I thought I, I'm just sharing a story, being funny, and I like to tell funny stories. And this is something that at this point I've moved past the anger and just wanted to share something funny. And it hurt my relationship with that person. My purpose was to build relationships going into that evening. And because of being short-sighted, I hurt relationships at that point. Just summarize this point on the unity of values. Imagine with me a triangle. You have God at the top and you and other humans on the opposite sides. Sin has driven a wedge between our relationship with others. That, that's just the, the rela- we are relational beings, but because of sin, it's tarnished that relationship, not just between you and God, but also with other believers. But as you get closer in loving God, there should be a, a relationship that grows between other believers. As you picture with that triangle, as you're getting closer towards God, you should also be getting closer to other believers. Now, Paul wasn't writing this passage merely for the sake of believers to mentally tolerate others. He wasn't saying, here's, all the, here's the reason that you're supposed to be united in your values. He's trying to drive them to action. Like, look at verses 3 through 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, 
Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Like smoke is to a fire, so our actions are are representative of our values and, and our thinking. Our actions ought to represent this unity that we have in our affections and our intentions and our purpose. Look at verse 3. We see that Paul sets up a contrast between how our sin nature wants to act and how believers are to act. Verse 3, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above above yourselves. This is contradictory to how our nature wants to act. At the core of who we are, we are selfish beings. And he's telling us to go against everything that internally is driving us to act. We're to value others more than ourselves. Now, it appears in verses 3 and 4, it, on a cursory level, it looks like they're synonymous. It looks like he's saying the same thing over again, or he's just re- repeating himself, maybe for dramatic effect. But there is a slight difference I'd like to point out here between three and four, verses 3 and 4. So in verse 3, we're seeing that he's saying don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, humility, value others above yourself. So yes, in our values, we should immensely view others as higher than ourselves. But how often do we do things for personal benefit? Even if it doesn't look like we're doing it for personal benefit, I teach in in ABF, I come in every week, I'm setting up... uh, uh, Whenever they ask for a setup after church, I'm there setting up. But what's driving is I'm trying to be noticed by others. I'm trying to puff myself up. I'm doing it for my selfish ambition or vain conceit. I'm trying to look better. Or maybe I'm trying to actually exploit other people within the church. Do you have those people in your church that are gifted handymen and you're you're trying to use that relationship with them for your personal benefit? Now, granted, as a church, we often benefit from the abilities of other believers but how often are we trying to exploit those within the church how many times am i doing something to build myself up here he's saying don't do anything out of selfish selfish ambition or vain conceit but in your mind value others more than yourselves and then he takes a step further not only are you supposed to not do things for the wrong reasons there should be a positive reaction here there you are to be looking out to your own interests i think this is taking a step beyond just the internal aspect when if i'm saying i have your back if i'm looking out for you it's not that i'm just keeping an eye on i'm not doing something on your behalf if tim is looking for a job and i know my company is hiring and i do nothing but i'm saying lord please provide a, a job for tim am i really looking out for his interests when i'm not going out of my way to do something for his benefit it kind of reminds me of uh, the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You could say that the Pharisee, the Levite, the priest weren't doing anything for selfish ambition. They just watched the guy. They just walked by. They didn't do anything to exploit him. But they didn't. were they looking out for his interest? Were they doing something to benefit that person? I mean, we see that they're, they're clearly the bad guys in the story, but... In our view, did they do anything wrong? They didn't do anything to make a situation worse. Sometimes we view that we're being united because there's an absence of conflict when reality, unity should take one step further and actually be going out of your way as self-sacrificing for the good of others. 
In verse 3, Paul states the negative aspect of not doing anything for personal gain, that is being selfless in our actions. He also states the positive, and that is actually doing things for the benefits of other believers. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. You might think you're walking in unity with the body, and in fact, a lot of the people in our congregation who have no interaction with with uh, people outside of the church might be viewing themselves as being in unity with the body. But is that really the definition of unity? Is unity the absence of conflict? Is unity uh, just everyone gets along? And our church, at least in my church, I don't really see that much conflict going on. It might be happening there, and I think in a lot of churches we don't see that the schisms necessarily that are developing. But I think a systemic problem that we're seeing in our congregations now is the lack of actual relationships that we're seeing. Getting to the point of discipleship and and working for the benefit of others. How often do you go out of your way self-sacrificially, giving up your time, your energy, your money, to show that you are actually looking out for the benefit of other believers? Not necessarily just in your congregation, but also in your classmates here at seminary and other believers that you know. Are you giving of yourself? Are you giving of your time? Are you seeing people outside church? And and as I said, this is one of the biggest regrets, not only of not building relationships with those of you in this room, but I've also used seminary to the detriment of my relationships at my church. I... I can't stay late tonight when I help with the college and career group. I have a test tomorrow. I really can't. I, I, I can't go to Wednesday night tonight because I have a, a HOM 3 sermon. Do not use seminary as an excuse from being united with other believers. Do not use your assignments. Yes, we, there are going to be sacrifices that we make, and I wish there were time, I had in certain times taken opportunities to speak into someone's life instead of trying to get a better grade. I'm not saying slack off on your studies, and I'm not saying this is an either-or, that you can either do this or you can, you, you can get a good grade or you can be united. You, you can genuinely do both. But do not use seminary as an excuse of being unified with other believers to be looking out for the interests of others. And I have to woefully say that this is the biggest regret of my time here in seminary, is that while I should have been applying the doctrine, the good theology that I received here in seminary, to be t- speaking into the lives of others, instead of just being uh, having the right head knowledge, having the perfect uh, senior doctrinal statements, which Dr. Snowberger knows is not the case, <clears throat> um, instead of, just focusing on having all this knowledge and having everything done correctly, if my theology has not touched my life and that I am using what I learn here in seminary, I will honestly say I wasted seven, uh, will have wasted seven years if I have not used it in, in building the relationships in my church. If I have not shown that love and affection for others, if I'm not helping and comforting, encouraging, consoling, rebuking, admonishing. If I am not doing this, then everything I learned would have been a waste because it has not impacted practically my life. And what we learn here is ought to be practical theology. 
and, and I'm saying, I'm not saying that's not what we're learning here. We are learning the right stuff, but it is up to you as a student to go out and apply it. Dr. Compton, Dr. Dawson, Dr. LVC, all of these, they cannot force you to apply it outside of the classroom. It's up to you to be building the relationships, to be unified in your values, which hopefully because of having a greater knowledge of who God is because of seminary, having a greater knowledge of what he's done for us should have a, help build our unity of values, but that does not take it the next step of being unified, to be looking out for the for um, other believers, to looking for the interests of other believers, to not do things out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. <clears throat> I'm going to close in prayer, and then I, I know you guys got a lot to study. So we're coming up to the finals here. Dear Lord and Holy Father, we praise you for. The seminary, we praise you for the what we've learned here. Lord, please help us to apply it to our lives that we would um, be self-sacrificial, that we would be united in our values, that we would um, not be driving wedges in between our relationships, um, and but that we would be going out of our way for, for others. Please help uh, us as we um, minister in our congregations and to our congregations. Lord, we praise you for all that you've done and all that you'll continue to do. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Inner City Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.